if the monarch turns up at a royal castle, the constable must show that they've got the keys. Welcome to 100 Years, 100 Objects, stories from the collections of Lancaster City Museums. My name is Millie Wellborn, and I'm a museum assistant for Lancaster City Museums. In this series, we're celebrating 100 years of our museums by looking in depth at 100 of our favourite objects and the stories that they can tell. Today on 100 Years, 100 Objects, we're looking at the history behind a formidable example of an everyday object and the stories that are locked away in the building that it comes from. It's an object that can tell stories of finery and formality, legal proceedings and suffering. Today's object is the Constable's Key from Lancaster Castle. The key is large and heavy. It's about 15 centimetres long with an oval handle. The shaft is embellished with several grooves and the section that interacts with the mechanism of the lock is a solid block of metal with T-shaped channels running in from either side. Although keys obviously have a very practical use, keys to significant buildings like this one also often have a ceremonial aspect to them as well. This key not only opened the gates of the castle, but also showed that the person who held it, the constable of the castle, held a notable position in the town. We spoke to Graham Kemp, former assistant keeper and keeper of the records at Lancaster Castle, who let us in on some of the history of the castle and its constables. He started off by telling us who the constable of the castle is. Lancaster Castle has been a royal castle since 1102, and obviously the monarch can't be in every single castle, so there must be a custodian of the castle on behalf of the monarch, which became the constable, which comes from the term the Count of the Stable Block, the chief knight of the castle. Their original role was the defence of the castle. The first constable of the castle was the Talibois family from Kendall, and they would hold that title through the 12th century. And the fifth baron would be the last one of the Talibars to hold that title, and he would be called William de Lancaster, which is probably the first record of that being a surname. He was the Castonian at the turn of the 11th, 12th century. In the 14th century, King Edward III returned from his wars in France to discover the Tower of London unlocked and no constable to be found. So as a punishment, every night, the constable must present the keys for the ceremony and when they lock. Now, that was their punishment, but for all royal castles, it became the fact that if the monarch turns up at a royal castle, the constable must show that they've got the keys to the castle, then it can be locked in times of war or conflict. So much a more honorary post now, only pays five pounds and 25 pence a year, but the one thing the constable must do is when the monarch turns up, show the keys. So when the queen turned up, I had to get the keys out, give it to Pamela Varka, the constable, and then she had to stand at the gate and as the queen came up, show the keys. And then that's her legal obligation completed. George V came for a visit, but he didn't want to visit the castle, so he only came to the market. So the constable actually had to come down to the market with the keys to be presented. And it is said that he just lifted one up and he lifted and said, oh, that's heavy, and moved on. To bring us up to speed, Graham gave us a potted history of the early centuries of Lancaster Castle. It was built in 1093 which is very early for a castle. There are no castles in England before the year 1066, 
because the Normans brought them. When I say Normans brought castles to England, I meant that literally. They brought two prefabricated castles with them on their boats and assembled the moment they arrived. Wooden castles are very quick to assemble. Since the Normans aren't French, but French-speaking Vikings, I like to think that those two prefabricated castles were the first Scandinavian flat packs ever to arrive in England. Because it's so early, it is almost certainly that the first castle was a wooden Mott and Bailey here. It will not be replaced by a stone castle until the 12th century. Castles are not like forts. Forts contain armies or towns. A castle is actually a family home. It's made up of two parts. The family lived in a little wooden tower on the top of an artificial mound called a Mott. But then around the Mott would be another fortified courtyard, which the Mott would sit in, which is known as the bailey, and that's where all the horses and the cooks and the servants and the men-at-arms would live. So to attack a castle, you have two lines of defence. First, you have to break into the courtyard, and then you have to climb up the steep mot to reach the little wooden tower at the top. It was founded by Roger de Belem of the Belem family, not a nice group of people. His mother used to like poisoning people for their lands and castles until she got beheaded in her own bed by a relative of one of the people she poisoned. Roger's father was William the Conqueror's right-hand man, Roger de Montgomery. His brother, the second Earl of Shrewsbury, was described as the most avarice, greediest and cruelest of all Norman barons. So you can imagine what Roger Belem was. But he's always known by the fact that he married a Poitevian wife as Roger de Poitou. In 1090, he owned what was South Lancashire, and he had a little Mott and Bailey at Penwortham, which is just south of Preston. He helped the new King of England, William II, take a large chunk of Scotland and make it England. We call it the Lake District. The Lake District was never part of England before 1090. So he was allowed to extend his lands north, and he thought a much better position to defend his lands was at Lancaster rather than Penwortham. So he moved his base up to Lancaster. There was already the ruins of a Roman fort there, so it had a strategic position. It covered the only crossing point from the north because of the hills coming right out to the coast. So he built here a little wooden mott and bailey and then founded a priory, which is St Mary's Priory, and they would pray for his soul and make sure he got to heaven. The best thing Roger did for Lancaster was to rebel against the next king, Henry I, his lands and castles were confiscated for his failed rebellion, and Lancaster, by default, became a royal castle in 1102, which meant it had some importance. As a baronial castle, it probably would not have survived another 100 years, but as a royal castle, it did have some importance. So in the 1150s, a great keep was built instead of the Mott and Bailey. The strange thing about that keep was it wasn't built by the King of England, because for 16 years... North Lancashire was part of the Kingdom of Scotland, and it was, in fact, built by King David I of Scotland, which makes Lancaster the most sudden royal Scottish castle ever built. When Lancaster went back to being part of England in 1154, it now had acquired one of the most powerful fortress keeps of any castle in the north. It could not be ignored now. It was now on the map. And he came into the possession of King John, became one of his favourite castles, and he spent a fortune on developing Lancaster Castle. Next, Graham explained the history behind the castle being a judicial centre, and how this function helped shape the buildings of the castle and ensure its survival into the present. King John's father, Henry II, had reorganised the judicial system. He established 
king's courts, one in each county of England. He would close the courts two months in the winter, two months in the summer, so his London judges could travel to those courts. These were known as the Assizes Courts. Assizes coming from the French to sit. Lancashire only really had one royal castle of any note. It happened to be Lancaster with this great, massive keep. Henry wanted to use his royal castles as the basis for these courts. They're secure buildings. You can keep the prisoners for six months in the dungeons. So Lancaster, like a lot of royal castles, became a centre of court justice and a prison. During the Civil War, the wars did get damaged. At the end of the Civil War, most royal castles were slighted. That is, meant the Parliament ordered them to be basically damaged in such a way as they couldn't be used as fortresses. They started to do that with Lancaster Castle, but then realised this might not be such a good idea if it's a working prison. But then by the 18th century, the front walls of the castle given up the ghosts and collapsed anyway. So now I know a, a castle without walls looks ridiculous, but a prison without walls is ridiculous. So they needed to be replaced. But there must have been a lot of confidence in Lancaster Castle as a working court base because the government decided to invest a considerable amount of money into the redevelopment of Lancaster Castle because it just didn't come along and build new walls. It practically rebuilt much of the castle, extending it out frontwards to increase the size of the prison and extending it at the back to build two Georgian courts, which is where Thomas Harrison was brought in to do that. And in fact, the Shire Hall is probably the most magnificent courtroom ever built. Certainly that was the view of the Times in 1816 that said you could not find a more glorious courtroom than Lancaster Shire Hall. But it also an expression of complete faith in Lancaster as a centre of justice, which kept it going right through into the 21st century. The first record of it working as a court is 1202. But unlike any other royal castle in the country, it's still used as a court base. It also means that it's the last medieval castle still working as a medieval castle because it's still running the courts. It still was, until 2011, a working prison. That's how royal castles were used in the 13th century, not just as fortresses, but as court bases and prisons. And that's what makes Lancaster unique. But it wasn't just constables and prisoners who could be found in Lancaster Castle in the Georgian period when Thomas Harrison was doing his work. Tourists had also started to come. We asked Graham to tell us a little bit more about how this started. Well, it sort of started at the same time that stately homes did. At the end of the 18th and the early 19th century, people used to go for tours round stately homes taken by the servants when the masters are away. Lancaster's the same. The courts only sat once every six months. So the rest of the time, the courts weren't in use. And the court keeper, who was in charge of looking after the courts, would use the opportunity to allow people, if they pre-booked, to take them around and look at the courts and admire them. And the court keeper, right up to 2009, the court keeper was still in charge of tours of the castle. In the 1920s, they hired a professional guide. His name was Danny Smith. But it's also at this time we started to take school groups. I think the earliest record of a school group was Greaves Park, who brought a school group in 1927, and he took them round. Lancashire County Council had acquired the castle between the wars 
as a police academy. Lancashire County Council couldn't buy it, but the Duchess felt it could lease. So Lancashire County Council now became to look after, particularly the court side of the castle. So it had tradition of looking after that court side and developing it. And it's Lancashire County Council that then developed the idea of tourism. So when the assizes came to an end in 1991 and Lancaster Castle was downgraded to a third division crown court, it meant there was more opportunity to use that side of the castle. So Lancashire County Council started to hire eight professional guys. They wanted to do the year of the Birmingham Six, but that trial was too important. They couldn't have people going around during the Birmingham Six trial. So the year after, it was such success, they had 44,000 people that summer season come round the castle. One court keeper was murdered while doing a tour. He was poisoned by his sister in 1910 and collapsed while doing a tour of the castle. That was Edith Bingham poisoning her brother. Murdered. So there's a bit of scandal there. Before he left, we asked Graham to tell us some of his favourite stories and cases from the castle's history. Well, there's so many. I mean, there really is. The Catholic Martyrs, you've got the Quakers, Margaret Fell and George Fox. Over 200 Quakers kept at Lancaster Castle. Many died while in prison there, but they were all kept in one room in the keep. And that room, which is the second floor on the right, is still known as the Quakers' room. And then the Quakers came back in the skies of Elizabeth Fry as, a, as a, a reformer. And then they were back again in the 1940s as conscientious objectors. There is the witches, of course, of which I wrote the play, Pendle Witches. But there are also other witch trials. There was a play written in 1634 of the Great Lancashire Witch Trial of 1634, which was really set up by the fact there was a boy who was late home and to stop his father beating him, he told him he'd been abducted by witches and his father said, we'll point them out. And then he pointed them out and then his father would see the person afterwards and get his son to retract if they paid him. Those who didn't ended up in Lancaster prison. To pick out a favourite is just... Uh... Well, there is. It has to be Pendle Witches, Alison Davis. It's not Device, it's Davis. East Lancashire can't pronounce their A's. Instead of saying David, they'll say David. And Davis, or device, is probably Davies. Alison Davies gets to you. I love her. It just gets to you when you read the story. No one other, others do, but she does. And my greatest ambition, which will never be realised, is to have a statue to her outside the castle with the late Queen. Because this would be the lowest of the low, uh, a, a beggar girl, and the highest of high, the Duke of Lancaster, and they could be arm in arm taking a selfie in front of the castle. Tourism and history put together. Thank you so much for getting locked up in history with us in this episode of 100 Years, 100 Objects. Join us next time when we will be discussing one of our other objects which range from dinner plates to dinosaurs. <laughs>